Good morning. All right, they can hear me. Um, I'm Dan Ware. I am one of the deacons at BC, and it's pretty weird that I'm the first one to preach in this context. So uh, I promise there was no arm wrestling or fighting. Uh, just Dan asked if I wanted to preach, and I picked the topic, not the location. So here we are. Um, all right. I'm going to try to not fall off the stage, too. So, But I'll, I'll take that. If I'm going to be the only one, I'll do it. Um, all right. I'm going to quit freewheeling and get into this. Uh, so we are going through uh, Advent series. This is the second week, and this week the topic is peace. So uh, we have kids in here. Um, kids, can you raise your hands so you know kind of where you're at? All right. Can someone give me a definition of the word peace? What does the word peace mean? Calmness. Okay. Anybody else? Philip? Peace. Nobody's messing with you. All right. What you got? Kindness with people. Um, Marshall has been raising his hand. Everyone's happy. All right. Those are good answers. All right. So there are two definitions of the word peace. One of them is, you guys hit both of them, actually. Um, one of them is uh, no fighting. So there's no conflict or war. Freedom from disagreement. And the second one is wholeness or completeness or calmness, I would say. Um, and that one is the one I'm going to focus on. Um, and you could say it's like you think of a car, okay? A car has a lot of different moving parts, right? It's got a, the tire that has air in it, and then there's a wheel that has to spin right, and the engine has, to, has a lot of moving parts itself. It has to work properly. Um, there's the air conditioner and the heater, so many parts of a car. And if all those parts are working together properly, you could say, kind of say that the car is in a state of shalom, completeness, okay? But what if one of those parts stopped working? What if the engine just stopped? Or what if one of the wheels started getting wobbly? What would be something that might happen, kids? What do you think? Breakdown. Right. Getting get in a car wreck, you know. <laughs> Bad things would happen, right? So you could say the car would not be in a state of shalom. The Bible says that without God, we are like that car. The world is like that car. We don't work right. The world doesn't work right. Our only problem, only our problem, is um, not a wheel. Right? It's not a, a flat tire. Our problem is in our hearts. It's sin. We have hearts that reject God, reject His way, and we choose our own way. Now, we might be able to fix a, a broken wheel or a flat tire, right? You see people fixing flat tires along the road a lot. But we can't fix ourselves. We can't fix our own hearts. 
But thankfully, God doesn't want us to be broken. And he has given us Jesus as the way we can have peace, we can have shalom. Did I say the word for shalom? I don't think I did. Okay, so the, the Old Testament word for the completeness type of peace is shalom. Um, we can have that shalom with God because of Jesus. Uh, our passage today says that God has reconciled or brought us back to himself and made peace by the blood of his cross. So kids, the next time that you see or hear about a car that isn't working or you see somebody fixing a flat tire, think about how Jesus has restored our broken peace with him by his death on the cross. All right, so this morning we are going to be looking at two passages. We're going to look at Psalm 85 and also uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 23. And we will start with Psalm 85, so I'm going to go ahead and read it. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may, may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Let's pray. Father, thank you for... Um, just thank you for this morning. Um, thank you for the words that we've already been able to speak and hear um, of your, your steadfast love that um, though we are broken and unable to, to live at peace with you, you, um, before the foundations of the world, set out that Jesus would be our, our reconciliation, would be our peace with you. And Thank you that um, all that we all that we have is you, and that's that's what we continually get to to remind ourselves of and lift you up. Um, so I pray that you would be lifted up through your word, through um, through the words that that I say. I pray that the ones that are true and right would would um, come from your word, and I pray that uh, you would uh, just hold me back from saying anything that is that is not from your word. So um, thank you for being here. Pray that you continue to uh, give us peace as, as I speak and as we hear. And pray this in Jesus' name. All right. So to summarize, this psalm is a cry to God for him to remember his relenting um, from anger and wrath and his faithfulness to Israel in the past and to ask him to again turn away his anger and have... Uh, to show his faithfulness and love to them. Uh, and then there's a bold 
statement of confidence that he will answer and bring peace to his people. Verse 1 through 3 uh, says, The Lord says, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Uh, there's debate about where, where the writing of this psalm fell in the history of Israel or what it's referring to. Um, there's, no, there's not a clear context in the psalm itself of this specific situation in which um, he's being asked to work. But uh, one of the purposes is so that this psalm can be used in various contexts. Um, it can be a liturgy for people to cry out to the Lord. So um, we, can, we can read it and be encouraged and guided by it as well. Um, God had previously acted in wrath and hot anger toward Israel and had withdrawn the wrath and turned away the anger. He had forgiven and covered their sin and restored their land and fortune. And we're going to verse 4. Um, 4 through 7, he turns to request, and he uses some rhetorical questions that I believe the answer is no, but I'm going to read it. Uh, Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. So he asks God to, again, turn, his, turn away his anger like he did uh, before, because he knows the nature of Israel's God, that he, he's not a God who delights in the death of the wicked, that his anger and wrath is not the default state. It's not his default state towards humanity. That he, he's the loving God that initiated the promises to Israel. The promises that uh, he will restore, um, that he will give them the land, that he will even take their stony hearts and give them uh, hearts of flesh, new hearts. Um, and that God desires, like the, the thing that God desires from his people is the sacrifice of a contrite heart and broken spirit. So he's, he's uh, knowing that, he's asking God, um, will, you, will you turn away again your wrath and uh, restore the fortunes of Jacob? Because um, he, he also knows God's promise and faithfulness to Jacob. He's basically saying, you have shown compassion and favor before, to us, please show us that compassion and favor again. And then in verse eight, the beginning of it, um, the psalmist declares that he will wait and listen to God's reply to his request. But he doesn't wait very long. It doesn't seem like uh, the sentence doesn't even get over before he uh, feel like he's overcome with confidence that God is going to speak, and he will speak good for Israel. He says, "Let me hear what the what God the Lord will speak." For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Uh, so the second half, uh, the not turning back to folly, I think we get uh, at least three implications here. Uh, one of them is that the nation had brought God's indignation and anger on themselves. So there's a link to folly and the fact that they are in a state of uh, God's wrath and anger so he's, he's acknowledging that we have put ourselves in this situation and we don't want to go back to that because as we, as we read the Old Testament, we see the cycle of uh, rebellion and then 
people crying out to God and God um, restoring and, and then going right back into rebellion. So he's saying, please don't let them go back to Polly. We don't want to, please break this cycle. Um, and the second implication here is that the psalmist, he's acknowledging that the blessing of God is conditional. Because, like I said, otherwise they will fall back into the cycle. Like they, God's people need to pursue righteousness and not turn to folly in order to main, that God will maintain um, this state that he's looking for. And the third thing is that the peace of God that God speaks will exist in the absence of folly. Or to put it another way, it will exist only in an ecosystem of righteousness and faithfulness, which we're going to look at as we go on here. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Here we get a vision of the state of shalom that the psalmist is looking for. Verse 9, salvation is near. Um, salvation for us is a, a buzzword because we know full salvation is found in Jesus, uh, as we'll look at when we get to Colossians. Verse 10, um, verse 10 is what I want to really draw out here. Um, steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss. So there's four, four elements here. Steadfast love, faithfulness, righteousness, peace. And this is, this is the ecosystem, things that define shalom, the peace with God, everything being the way God intended. There's no tension between these four things. They all, they, they kiss, they meet. Um, so let's remember that. Um, and a question that we could ask here is whose steadfast love, who, whose attributes are these? Who is it referring to? Is it God's love? Or is it our love towards him? Is it his love or our faithfulness? Or his faithfulness or ours? And the righteousness and peace. Um, ultimately, I think the takeaway um, for the vision, this vision of a peaceful existence um, from God, is the takeaway is that these four attributes are what make a people truly happy and prosperous. These attributes are also mentioned allegorically like this in Isaiah, and I have a couple of these just to help us um, see that this is language of, um, that the Old Testament uses for God's um, peace and like a state of his reign. So uh, Isaiah thirty-two sixteen, then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And then verse 45 8 says, Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. So this is, these are four things that are hallmarks of shalom. Love, uh, faithfulness, righteousness, and peace. All right, so, and then in verse 11, um, we find the source of these attributes. So the question about whose love is it, whose faithfulness, it says faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. So I think the answer is it comes from God. Like whether we're expressing it or he's expressing it, it's coming from 
from the work that he does. Like, we can't cause things to sprout up out of the ground. God causes that, and he uh, speaks forth from heaven. Like, we can't make things come down from heaven. Um, so they all spring from the Lord. Uh, and then verse 12, we see more confidence from the psalmist. The land will yield. God really does have concern for things like crops. Um, and the, the commentaries that I read talked about how the reference to things springing up from the ground and um, things like that uh, give an implication that part of the anger and wrath that God had was um, felt in the lack of crops, like the, the lack of abundance in their, their, um, their land. And so that's part of the, uh, what, what causes the psalmist to write this psalm that he wants restoration of that. And so my initial reaction is like, oh, well, then it's not very spiritual. Like it's, it, it's just about crops, but uh, it's not. I mean, if you read the whole psalm, it's clearly not. We've already talked about that. But, um, but I think it is important to, to, to think about that, that, that we, we don't just hope for uh, a spiritual renewal. Like we really are looking forward to God restoring our hearts, restoring our spirits, but like restoring the earth, and uh, this the the full picture of God's uh, shalom on earth includes abundance and the, and the ground springing up. And uh, I mean, He created the earth. He planted a garden. He created man to work the garden and to eat of its increase. And so that's this is our Father's world. He intends for the land to do that and that to be part of the picture. So. Uh, I think that's, that's good and important. So verse 13, righteousness goes before, uh, make, make his path a way a path, or I don't have the, you know what I mean. Uh, but uh, God himself is walking in, this, in the midst of this peace. God is dwelling with the people. That's, uh, that's really important. Uh, and so now we're going to turn to Colossians to see uh, how this vision uh, is realized in Jesus, you know, as we think about God dwelling in the midst of people. Um, it's the incarnation, it's the birth of Jesus. So uh, the, passage, the passage is Colossians 1, 15 through 23. Um, verses 15 through 20 are written in the form of a poem or a hymn. There's debate about whether Paul adapted a pre-existing hymn or if it's something he just created on his own. Um, but I thought that was, that was neat and um, just a helpful way to, to read it. So the way that, that it is in the slides loosely reflects how it would look in poem form. Uh, the Greek has like some of the phrases are in a different order, and I'm sure you know people smarter than me could, could give more to that. But um, this is kind of what it would look like in poem form. So I'm going to read it. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace 
by the blood of his cross. Like I could just read that over and over again and that'd be a good enough sermon. Uh, and, oh, I'm going to finish uh, 21 through 23 here. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Um, so back to 15 through 20. I think it's helpful to see it in um, the form of a poem, if not only to see how verse 17 and 18 mark a turn in the topic. So there's a slide here that shows it's broken into sections. So uh, section one and two are about Jesus, and I would say in reference to uh, the natural world or creation or the ancient world, or even I maybe say the Old Testament, the world of the Old Testament. Uh, and then sections three and four, verses 18 through 20, are about Jesus in reference to the new creation that he established um, at his resurrection. So uh, verse 15 says, um, if we look at verse 15, um, I did not I go back and find it, sorry. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So I said, um, talking about the, the format, the breakdown of the poem, I said Jesus in reference to creation, but we see immediately that it's more accurate to say just everything in Jesus, that he's, he's first. He's the, uh, and it says he's the image, um, and that gives us Adam vibes, right? Like we're, Adam was made in the image of God, and I think that shows that even Adam was a shadow of the, the full image of God that we see in Jesus, um, the firstborn of all creation. This, um, the firstborn can be kind of confusing in our from interpreting into our understanding, but um, it's unpacked, I think, in verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So basically everything is his and issues from him. Um, firstborn is, I think, I think just he's first. The Bible translates... Uh, Bible translations give this section heading something like the preeminence of Christ or the supremacy of the Son of God. And there's a hymn that I found that's based on this passage that the title of the hymn is The First Place. I think that's helpful that he's, he's first. Um, verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So not only did he create everything, but he also sustains it all. All things in all times, in all places, including the ancient world, the world of, the, uh, of which the psalmist wrote. Whether abundance or famine, exile or inheritance, it was all existing in, through, and because of Jesus. Uh, verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, so uh, verse 15 through 17 establishes Jesus as the God of the created, natural, Old Testament world. 
And verse 18 turns the topic from creation to the new creation, which was established and, and began at his resurrection. How great, we see here, how great is it that the, one of the first uh, descriptions of this new creation is the church. He's the head of the body, the church. Uh, I find that really encouraging. Um, it says he's the beginning, the firstborn, which picks up the language of verse 15. Um, but this, this beginning is one that is the shalom that's desired and hoped for in Psalm 85. And it says, from the dead. So that answers a question, an unspoken question in uh, the first section here, 15 through 17, there was something wrong. Like there, there's something broken about the, the creation that just the natural world um, and it's, it's death, which is sin, is a result of sin. So sin and death um, were the problem. So death itself is in view. And um, so that the first image of God, Adam, turned from God and he brought sin and death. But it says that he is the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So death had its day. Sin had its day. But Jesus has risen. He died, and he rose again to show that he is victorious, and he he triumphs over death. He triumphs over the the domain of darkness and sin. So... um, for, in verse 17, it says, uh, He is before or supreme over all things. You may ask, what about death? You could have asked that, and it's answered here. Um, verse 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven, on earth, or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Verse 19, um, the this the idea of uh, the fullness of God um, and being pleased to dwell, it's very deep, and I can't do it justice, um, so I'm just going to kind of rephrase it. The pleasure of the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus. Um, was pleased to dwell and was pleased to reconcile. Um, but uh, Jesus is the fullness of God. He is fully God. And, um, and then we move to verse 20. Here is, uh, this is what I want to uh, focus on. This is what I, I want to draw out again. As in verse 17, it says, all things hold together through Jesus. Uh, it implies a continual sustaining. Here Jesus not only kills death, but replaces it with shalom. He's the firstborn from the dead. He put it to dead and to death and... Um, he has made peace by the blood of his cross. The pe- this passage explains the peace of God as restoration or resurrection, reconciliation. Whether earth or heaven. So that makes me think of the, the source of righteousness and uh, faithfulness. Springs up from the ground, from heaven. Um, he's reconciled all things. Um, and these, so these attributes that we talked about before that mark the shalom of God are purchased by the blood of Jesus' death on the cross. New creation is shalom. 
the resurrection that Jesus is the first of. We, we follow him in that. And, and he, through that, we come to the peace of God that is uh, hoped for uh, by the psalmist. And it's already done. He has made peace by the blood of his cross. Um, it's, it's the pleasure of God to reconcile all things to himself. And Jesus has done that, and he, he is doing that. Um, he has reconciled all things to himself. Praise the Lord. Uh, and then in verse 20, 21 through 23, we get an immediate application of this peace that he's made for us. Um, he's made peace for us, and he's also made us peaceful. Like he's given us the ability to, um, to be righteous and uh, to, to experience the attributes um, in Psalm 85. So verse 21, it says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You, he has now made, so you, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order, to, in order that you would be blameless and holy, fully capable of living in the vision of Psalm 85. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So when I get to this verse, the thought I have to constantly re reevaluate and correct is it's okay, this is the part where I figure out what I'm supposed to do. Like now you know this, what do you do? Um almost as if to think Jesus, in whom we all live and move and have our being, who has done for us what we could never do and made us who we could never be. Now it's my turn. Like, I'm going to do something. Uh, I think that's folly. Um, I don't want to fall into that. And it's something that I, I, I tend towards. And I think we all tend towards that. But, but uh, let's look at the, the condition. <sighs> Because it is conditional. But let's look at the condition. It says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So what, what is the object of the condition? The objects are faith, hope, the gospel. Um, but we, we kind of want to remove those objects. We wanna, sometimes we want to say, If indeed... You continue, stable and steadfast, not shifting. Like that's you know that's what we're doing, but that's not our call. the The condition is that we believe. It's faith that we believe the things that we've just read, things that we we're talking about. Jesus is first. He is um, preeminent. He's supreme. We do exist in Him, and He He's the one that has caused our salvation. He's the one that's made us righteous, made us peaceful. So it's something to consider when you think about peace or see it in a song we sing during Advent, or even if you're just longing for God's peace on earth, ask yourself, what, what do you think peace is? 
What is the requirement for peace? What does it look like? What does it mean to be a peacemaker? What does it mean to be peaceful people? And put all those questions in the context of the supremacy of Christ and the fact that he is the one who brings us peace and makes us peaceful. So if you're a believer, if you trusted in the righteousness of Jesus for your salvation, don't turn again to folly like we talked about. Don't think that you can muster some kind of peace on your own. Don't seek peace in anyone or anything but Jesus. Hold fast to him as your peace. If you haven't yet trusted in Jesus as the only way to true life and peace with God, you're not capable of living in this um, eternal peace that we've described today. Um, humanity, I think, has a instinctual desire for peace. Like, just it's just a human, usually condition that we we want to see a peaceful existence. We want a reign of peace. Um, but in, in the song, a couple songs we sang this morning, I think um, the, the phrase desire of nations, I think, gets to that a little bit, that, that there is an innate desire that we have for peace. But the problem is that we are broken, that we don't seek peace in the way that it's described in God's word. We don't seek peace in uh, the way God, uh, by, by seeking God's will rather than our own, um, which is through the person of Jesus. And so if you, if you don't believe in him, um, if you haven't trusted in him and you haven't been made holy and blameless and put on the righteousness of God and been able, been made um, someone who desires God's will over your own will, then, then you're, you're not fit for true peace. So my, I just ask you to hear the word this morning. Like the, the thing to do is to hear and believe, to have faith, to uh, believe that God's, God's reign is the reign that we want, um, and it's the reign that he describes on his terms, um, and not because he's uh, wrathful and angry or a dictator, but because he's good, because he made us and, and knows what's good for us. So um, hear the word this morning, believe. To reject Jesus is folly. Don't continue in it. Trust in Jesus and let him make you a new creation. Be reconciled to God through Jesus. All right. Thank you guys for listening this morning. Um, I, one thing that I love about preaching is just I feel like you guys, I feel the love, you know, that uh, uh, I know I probably said some things that... Um, didn't make sense or maybe need a little bit of nudge, but uh, I, I know that you will, you'll talk to me about it and that you love me and like, I really appreciate um, your, your peaceful hearing of me this morning. So uh, I'm going to pray and then somebody will come and do introduce Lord's Supper. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that... Um, that you've given us all that we need um, for, uh, for life, to know what your will is for us, uh, to know where we come from, and to know where we're going and what the, um, the path of uh, goodness is.
the path of completeness and shalom and real life. Thank you that it's all laid out for us in your word and that there's nothing we can do on our own to enter it, that, um, Jesus, you've done it all for us. We thank you so much for peace. And uh, thank you, for Jesus, for your, um, your work, for your blood on the cross that uh, reconciles us, that draws us out of the domain of death, the, uh, out from under the reign of, of death and sin, and into your new life, the, the hope of the resurrection, the, the new heart and new desire we have um, because of your work. Thank you so much for that. Um, and Spirit, we thank you that you have come to be our helper and to uh, make these things uh, sink into us and make us uh, more and more into the image of Jesus, into the people that really can experience um, your complete peace. And uh, we, we love you, God, and we thank you for uh, this time, pray that you continue to, to give us peace as we worship this morning. Amen.